Welcome back to Powered by Play. This is Avery and Drew, and today we are talking about heritage. What does it mean to explore heritage through play? How do we play to remember or even to learn new things about where we come from? How much of our past and others is encountered, preserved, and even transformed through play? All right, Drew, go ahead and press play, won't you? Thank you, Avery. Okay, I'm going to begin today with a quote from performance studies researcher Diana Taylor, who talks about a concept that she calls scenario. And let me just read the quote from her here, and then we're going to talk about how this fits in with what we're talking about today. She says, Scenario, a sketch or outline of the plot of a play giving particulars of the scenes, situations, etc., like performance, means never for the first time. Like Barth's mythical speech, it consists of material which has already been worked on. Its portable framework bears the weight of accumulative repeats. The scenario makes visible yet again what is already there, the ghosts, the images, the stereotypes. The discoverer, conqueror, in quotes, savage, and native princess, for example, might be staple characters in many Western scenarios. Sometimes they are written down as scripts, but the scenario predates the script and allows for many possible endings. So Avery, here she's really what I get out of Diana Taylor's description is events that begin as actual parts of history, but then they become symbols. They become touchstones that simplify very complex historical ideas, events, people, moments. And they allow us to load in our own values and our own senses of self and community. Often, I think scenarios become sources of pride or sources of faith along with being sources of power struggle. So if you look at something like uh, Jesus and the Last Supper, for example, as a scenario, and how much staying power that, ha that has, and how much meaning it has in every one of its pieces, what do we know about the actual Last Supper and what is given to us through the Christian Bible? Um, very little, but it stands in for much, much greater things. Or another example would be Stanley and Livingston meeting in the heart of Africa back when this, the mapping of Africa was taking place with the colonial powers. The fact that these two white men happened to bump into each other and their significance as kind of the representatives of the quote-unquote explorers during that period. Gandhi's Salt March would also be an example. It's absolutely a historical event that happened and that was filled, filled with meaning and filled with revolutionary fervor. And it's something that when you reduce it to, oh, that's when Gandhi moved through India and had people make salt so that they wouldn't have to pay the British taxes. It reduces it, but it also makes it very flexible. And you can sort of plug it into a lot of different 
areas or a lot of different ideas that you're you're looking to convey with regard to the past or your own heritage. It reminds me of that painting of George Washington on that one boat and he's crossing that one river that we all had memorized in our heads during elementary school. Oh yeah, crossing the Delaware. Mm -hmm. And also the Mona Lisa, even though she's just a portrait, like you said, there are so many more meanings that we've imposed onto it over the centuries as to who we are and what we think of all of that. And it's almost a very spiritual way of analyzing our history. Even even though, you know, The Last Supper itself is a rather religious biblical piece, I think when we when we think of these symbols from our history in the layers and layers that we give them over time of, oh my gosh, this Mona Lisa, like who is she? Maybe she was just like me or she was just different from me. What she's what is she feeling? I feel it too, but I also don't feel it. But I think she's smiling. Maybe she's not <laughs> smiling. Maybe does she even need to smile? And kind of imposing all of this interest and uh, internal story onto these symbols yeah, of our culture. Absolutely. So I think that's a great starting place for a discussion of how we are playful with our own history and also a little bit about how we are playful with histories of other people in a way that's almost like a, a tourist in events and in other ways that we are called to be playful as we remember. And I know you found quite a bit, Avery. I did. Yet again, I didn't think that I would find that much for this episode, but then I now have too much to talk about. Uh, so one of the things that I have done the past month is I went to my university's Spurlock Museum uh, in Champaign-Urbana. It has a bunch of global exhibits featuring artifacts from numerous cultures in different continents. And one of the exhibits that I was drawn to was the South American exhibit in which they showcased a lot of artifacts of shamanism. So shamanism has origins in Siberia, but occurs throughout the world and is this ancient kind of performance that is still practiced today by specialists in exorcism, prophecy, divination, healing, and trance. They diagnose, they exorcise, they heal, they divine and prophesy, they avenge and hex, locate games, settle quarrels, ease childbirth, and more. So shamans employ a rich performance toolkit that includes music, dance, masks, costumes, and objects, and thus they are simultaneously entertainers as well as spiritual leaders within their community. They partake in drumming, dancing, singing, storytelling, magic making, masking, costuming, and all of this after a lifelong, lifelong's worth of training, initiation, and practice, practice, practice. Now, that is a lot of jobs to do in one person. And yet yeah, this tradition originates from thousands and thousands of years ago, ever since humans kind of have been in communities. And one of the exhibit plaques described a, um, some, a, the power of the shaman is their shamanic vision, where they have great, great powers that abide in the sky, the earth, the water, and underneath. So very natural, earth-oriented um, communion, almost. 
Their control of these powers lies in the ability of the shaman to move in and out of the world of spirits, to cure the body, the soul, and the psyche, and to see the everyday world and the cosmos in aesthetic patterns communicated to others through their rituals. And they notably are essentially living in both worlds, the real world of their community, and then also the unseen world of some alternate universe psychological yet spiritual domain and sometimes they physically sit on a seat of power of their community such as a large water turtle shell or a jaguar skin um, and allows them to be literally rooted or symbolically rooted in their household domain while their mind and their spirit and their soul journeys to distant places in various planes of existence. And sometimes hallucinogenic plants might aid them to see these other realities, to understand the history and destiny, and to diagnose and cure illness. And sometimes, uh, a fun fact, to diagnose illness, the shaman shakes a leaf, bundle, or rattle, and spirit helpers come to him as sparks or flickering snake tongues, and they aid him in introspection and vision, and... All this, you know, it sounds like a, I, I know I said fun fact, but really this is a very important role for these members of society and has been for thousands of years. And it's almost their leading, it's almost like their leading play. Yeah. They're kind of saying, okay, here are the rules of the game and I am roughly in charge of how those rules are played out in society. I have a connection with the beyond. Am I kind of understanding that right? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they would involve trance performing. Uh, one type of trance performance is, well, okay, in our lovely book uh, that we mention about five times every episode is a Performance Studies, an introduction by Richard Schechner. The three kinds of trance performing are sometimes intertwined with shamanic rituals um, such as possession trance, ecstatic trance, and shamanic trance. And one of those that caught my eye, which I kind of wanted to mention a bit later but is probably relevant now, is possession trance where performers are taken over by non-human beings or things like gods, spirits, demons, forces, animals, or objects. Um, in possession trance performing, the possessed are like puppets. They do not control themselves or their actions, and after coming out of trance, they may or may not rem remember what they did. So yeah, it kind of does feel like they are leading a sense of play with their community and for their community, but also their communities take it really seriously, don't they? Absolutely. A, a very serious interpretation of this playful communication or dance or or visions um and when you said I, I think you said dolls or puppets when the gods or the forces take over a human being and of course dolls and puppets are playthings so a human being used as a plaything of the gods is very, very different in this indigenous religion than it would be, say, in the Christian faith. In the Christian faith, with, with possibly the exception of speaking in tongues, right? That in the Christian faith, possession is not a good thing, mostly because it is demons that can be expected to possess someone. 
And giving over one's agency, I think, in many world religions, giving over one's agency or one's connection with God, the one true God, would be seen as dangerous rather than a part of the faith or a part of a ritual that was designed to help the community cohere. Yeah, reminds me of the satanic panic of the 1990s where oh, yeah. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons players were seen as demonic and satanic and anti-Christian. Yeah. It was seen as dangerous to roleplay as fighting dragons. It was. There was so much symbolism and community fear against this quote-unquote silly little game. Yeah, it was a time. It was a time when people were wondering about things like cults wondering about things like studying the occult. And there were some very serious and scary things that happened in those cults and either self-sacrifice or going after people in the name of these evil forces. And then here comes Dungeons and Dragons and says, let's turn this miniatures game, this whole miniatures movement of war games and war gamers into something that can have a fantasy setting. Let's go to Tolkien and let's further imagine that we can take on a character. And I think Avery, oh my gosh, I think maybe it's taking on that character or the idea that that character might be possessing the player, especially if they're playing in first person, that may have thrown people off. What do you think? Yeah, and the, the fact that one of the most prolific women who lobbied against D&D and did, all, did a ton of fear-mongering about the game refused to sit in on actual sessions of real players playing the game. So... The imagination truly can go wild when you have a simple spark. Absolutely. But not even sitting in on sessions escalated the fear-mongering and just kept that train of panicking rumors going. Yeah. Don't tell me too much or I might actually start getting curious and seeing the truth of the matter. Yeah, which is why it's so important to see museums and to read. And museums usually have such tactile, literal stuff from the actual time. Well, you actually cannot touch a lot of stuff in certain museums. Yeah. But some museums you can, like the Discovery Cube, uh, their Dino Quest exhibit. I don't know if you've been there before. Oh, I have, yeah. The Discovery Cube, just south of Chapman University in Santa Ana, and... You would not mistake the Discovery Cube for anything else. It is literally a cube that screams museum for families. Yeah, and it was one of the highlights of that during my adolescence was their dino quest in like their backyard right under the cube in the outdoors. And basically you would learn the whole story of the dinosaur from the egg to adulthood to death to archaeology and digging it up millennia later. And then you can run around inside a giant dino dinosaur ribcage. I think it's the ribcage of the Diplodocus. And I mean, well, the ribcage is also exposed. So like imagine a ginormous replica of a Diplodocus, but 
in the middle of its body, the skin is invisible and you can just see the ribs, which is not entirely realistic, but it's scientifically fun. And then you get to wave hi to your parents down below. Um, and you get to hear the sounds that they might make. You get to hear, uh, you get to see their skulls and their bones and how tall they are. You get to dig in wet, gross sand and touch fake bones yourself and I mean I think this is the second time I've mentioned the discovery cube on this um, podcast but the one difference about last time I, I talked about the grocery shopping but the dinosaurs I mean dinosaurs technically are history wouldn't oh, you yeah. agree oh yeah absolutely <laughs> another time another the same place but a different place and these creatures that are almost unimaginable and yet, here are their bones, and we know they were here. Oh yeah, there's no doubting it. You cannot, like, I mean, but people still doubt a lot of things that there is evidence for. Are there dinosaur doubters out there? Oh, I, th I think there are, yeah. I think there are. Mm. But you're right. Uh, I, I mean, easily, easily proven false, like um, flat earthers. If you watch a ship go out over the horizon to the ocean that's the easiest way to prove that the earth is round the if the earth were flat you would continue to see the ship but you see it actually lower which means it's going around a curve true facts spoken by drew yeah yeah <laughs> and then, like the thing about the moon landing too right how people were like oh, that's oh yeah i mean i am probably yeah. never going to see the moon the moon in person and yeah me either i dang it i <laughs> i will you know what i also will not probably ever see in person is the titanic um but also, that has been such a mythological event of our human consciousness. Oh, for sure. I, I used to be obsessed with the Titanic. I, I read that uh, Magic Treehouse book on it like a ton of times. And that book even had a companion book. It was like extra research on the Titanic. And it makes sense how it's such a widely known tragic story, how it's like, oh, all these American, British, European families. It's this glamorous giant boat. But oh no, their hubris is their downfall. Mm, yeah. And out of it arises all these legends and heroes and heroines and... The disaster is so romantic yet mythological and then now in 2023 you have this group of billionaires wanting to see it and then dying on the way oh my gosh that's right i i had actually forgotten about that but <laughs> the i know the yeah um, it was all that people would talk about for a while i was I, so I know. tired of hearing about it oh ab yeah absolutely and it also is one of those scenarios that diana taylor was talking about if you detach the story of the Titanic, like you were saying, mythical or mythological or whatever it is, just as a symbol, not as the historical event, look how much you can load into it. Yes, you can load in stories about human hubris. You can load in stories about if only, if only the Titanic had not turned to try and get away from the iceberg, there are several people who say if they'd just gone straight it wouldn't have they would have sort of 
broken it off rather than scraping the side. I don't, I don't actually know the truth, but you know, this is a scenario. And then of course, oh my goodness, Jack and Rose and the romantic nature of classes, which were not supposed to mix on the Titanic mixing and Celine Dion's song and the flute. And I mean, this was actually an accident in which scores <laughs> of people died, right? But we can switch it to tell the kind of story that we want to tell. Yeah. yeah. Would you still all this kind of experience playful? See, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think that's worth looking at in terms of different ways that we curate things for museums or for other places. So... Museums, living history sites, the idea of bringing the past to life and curating what is valued from the past. Did you watch the, the series Wednesday, the Wednesday Adams series? No, I have not seen Wednesday. Okay. Avery, I think you would dig that series. There is a part of that series where there's a living history site in New England and Wednesday Adams goes there and just debunks everything that they're saying and says, no, you're not being historically accurate. It's a riot. Oh, right. But, she does the Thanksgiving thing, right? Yeah. Well, she does that in the movie. Oh, um, never mind. I then. think that's Adams Family Values. Ah, never mind. And then in the show, she does, it's, it's basically like Plymouth Plantation. And she's like, they wouldn't have made fudge in those times. And they're selling fudge to, you know, make a buck. <laughs> but... The way that these things are framed, there's joy in heritage, there's trauma in heritage. The joy of dancing, the joy of food, music, happy endings and stories, and then the trauma of living through disasters or living through periods of hate. In, um, in Little Tokyo in L.A., there is the museum that talks about the internment camps and what a room in one of those camps would have looked like, or Anne Frank's The Secret Annex, the house that contains the secret annex in Amsterdam. So you're really right to ask, well, can we call these play or playful? If we go way back to that original definition that you and I had in episode one and and we said there seems to have some kind of, there seems to be some kind of sense of joy or pleasure. And maybe it's not in remembering these events, but maybe it's in the idea that perhaps we can or we are transcending these kinds of things. A sense of safety. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I remember we were describing play as fun and transcending the restrictions of reality. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. Actually, in um, at the Spurlock Museum, again, they also had an exhibit this week about Japanese incarceration camps and their descendants and actually how a lot of their descendants are also in Illinois and part of that. And I didn't know that. I'm from California. Oh, so yeah, I, I didn't know that the Midwest really had a story about Japanese Americans. But now after I read about them, I was like, oh, of course, this makes so much sense. And their exhibit description is connecting histories of exclusion and anti-Asian hate to current reports of violence and hate crimes inflicted upon Asian and Asian Americans that upset our contemporary news headlines. 
providing an overview of greater Japanese-American experience from pre-war to anti-Japanese propaganda and then forced removal slash incarceration. And there was even one exhibit where a portrait photographer presented uh, a series of large-scale portraits taken in a in you know dramatic serious lighting featuring anti-japanese propaganda or islamophobic propaganda actually and the people featured in each portrait were of japanese and or arabic descent and they would be like holding the t-shirt that was a you know political cartoon against quote-unquote japs or holding a poster against muslim people maybe how beforehand we described play as escaping reality or transcending reality maybe now in terms of heritage we're talking about play in the reverse of that oh yeah where we're returning to reality while still holding on to the parts of creativity and imagination that i remember i mentioned about it as well in that we are imagining the reality again we're imagining it's almost i don't know like nonfiction and fiction are so similar yet so yeah. different. i mean it's just a story um we just we just make stories so what's the difference between imagining that you're in a magic treehouse versus imagining that you're going along with um, japanese americans who are being incarcerated for no reason yeah um so so maybe that's that's part of it yeah the idea of immersion and joining in the creative process and I think you're right. If you are using your imagination to immerse yourself in the world that they are painting for you and the tragic nature of that world, then it, it may not be fun play. It may not be joyous play, but it does seem to be playful. It does seem to be taking you along on a journey. One of the plays that I've been reading and researching lately has been The Madras by Stephanie Allison Walker. I don't know if you know of this play. Oh no, love to hear about it. Yeah, the blurb is that it's 1978 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where people are disappearing right off the street, but no one's talking about it. So it's in the middle of the Dirty War in Argentina. That was a period in which there was large-scale humanitarian rights violations committed by the militant government at the time. And basically it's state-sanctioned government and um, this play by Stephanie Allison Walker is a really powerful glimpse into the lives of some of the mothers that have been affected and how they're uh, out of these enforced disappearances um, enforced by the state at this time, women began to protest in the street in public, even though it was dangerous for them. But they had to protest because their children had gone missing by the government and the government was actively denying it and such. And even now, the um, the, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, that's their their activism name, basically. Um, and now it's the mothers and grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo. But they're still protesting mm. to this day. Or they're still marching to this day because um, this, this event in Argentina's history is something that has left a permanent mark on this country and its people. And 
one of the um, one of the main aspects of my research has also been around the ESMA, which is which is the Navy School of Mechanics in Buenos Aires, which was the headquarters of these forced disappearances, the torture, and the murder that occurred throughout this um, this humanitarian. Well, okay, well, throughout the Dirty War, but it wasn't really a war. It was called that to try to make it seem like it was an even playing field, but it really wasn't. It was oh, it was right. just very oppressive for the people. But anyway, this building now that used to be these headquarters is it's been transformed transformed into the ESMA Museum and Site of Memory as a national historic monument. So it's supposed to be a proof of state terrorism and judicial evidence in the case for crimes against humanity in Argentina. And they haven't really altered anything. And they haven't altered the building structure itself. And the the website of this um, of this national historic monument emphasized how important it is to maintain that judicial evidence that this happened. This event transcends memory, and now this museum is going to also transmit memory. Mm. They are going to continue to raise awareness, to share the experience of these affected individuals, and to share the understanding around the human rights violations committed by the Argentine state. It's a multi-generational dialogue that is immersive. You can walk through this building where terrible acts were committed and you can learn from the stories of the people affected. And it might seem strange. You might be like, well, I don't have anything to do with that. Why would I, a random person from America, it's like, say you're going, you know, to Argentina for a vacation, right? Um, why? Why would you want to go to sure. a museum talking about humanitarian crimes on your vacation when you're traveling abroad? I mean, what what is the value in that? Mm. Getting a sense of the fullness of the history of the space and the complexity of the space. It's it's every every country, every place is going to have it's, I don't want to say dark places, is, is going to have its places that are places of trauma. And the trauma, perhaps coming from poverty, coming from hate, but are certainly connected with dehumanizing people. And I, I really like what you said about transmitting memory. That memory must stay active. If we forget, then this kind of trauma can happen again. And I think, again, we can ask the question of, is there joy there? Is there, is there pleasure? And it's not that kind of play. It's, it's a, how about this, Avery? How about if we call this perhaps play of responsibility mm, i like that and play of a full sense of humanity and you can go to for example i was traveling in the bahamas 
this summer. I had a, a, about a week in the Bahamas, and sure, you have the beautiful beaches with the powder white sand and the rich blue water, and you have all the different stuff that they can make out of the conch, the animal, animal that comes out of the conch shell, and you have bands, but you also have spaces where they talk about the legacy of slavery and the legacy of owning people, dehumanizing people, the, the deaths of just countless people who were gathered together and forced to work in inhumane conditions. But that is part of the space as well. And saying, I sound like I'm, you know, lecturing or, or something, but acknowledging the fullness of history and taking an honest look at all that heritage encompasses is the responsibility that we all kind of share. I think you hit the nail on the head there. How about if we look at our own heritage and ways that we were possibly taught to play as kids and understand who we were through where we were brought and what we did? Yeah, let's do that. One of my favorite experiences growing up every year was Lunar New Year. I am Vietnamese and Chinese ethnically, so at home my family would speak Vietnamese and we would do more Vietnamese traditions, but my parents also sent my siblings and me to Chinese school after school every day, so we would also have the Chinese side of the celebrations of Lunar New Year. So um, in Asian countries, they go by the lunar calendar, which is based on the moon. And so for the first two weeks of the lunar calendar, that constitutes Lunar New Year. And this celebration originated from this old ancient myth of the monster Nian. Uh, it was called Nian, which means year in Mandarin but also because of the supposed sound that it would make. I don't know, it probably sounded like a... Yeah! I don't know, that sounds kind of like a cat now. Oh, but that's great. Sure it was very fearsome. Um, but this beast was a menace. It returned every year to terrorize villagers, eat crops, livestock, children, and humans. And the villagers eventually realized, though, that it was afraid of the color red and fire and loud noises. So this leads to the ultimate tradition of wearing and decorating with red, lighting firecrackers, and performing lion dances throughout the Lunar New Year celebrations. Uh, like I said, it's two weeks long, so during this time they emphasize family and friend reunion dinners, cleaning one's homes beforehand, not on the day of New Year itself, um, and sharing meals and mandarin oranges and wishing prosperity and luck to each other. So a lot of symbolism with what well, with all the oranges, the red, the fruit and vegetables and all the shared warmth overall. And not just warmth from the firecrackers, but soul warmth, you know? Mm. One of my favorite parts of Lunar New Year was lion dancing. Uh, this is not to be confused with dragon dancing. So with lion dancing, I'm referring to um, usually it's only two performers in one costume, whereas with uh, traditional dragon dancing, it's usually 
um, five or ten or whatever um, performer is holding maybe a pole with a dragon puppet almost. Um, but with lion dancing, um, there are a bunch of variations throughout China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Singapore. But of course now it's spread throughout the rest of the world and even ha takes place in Mexico sometimes as well. Um, and basically it's a ritualized, stylized dance for entertainment and spiritual purposes. And it's a lot of times you'll see it, so in my experience with the US, um, you would see it at a lot of weddings. Um, I know my sister is going to have some line dance performers at her wedding this September, so I'm excited to see them. Um, I'm only going to be excited for the lion dancers. I don't really care about my sister. I'm just kidding. Oh. They're very exciting, especially as a kid. Wait, have you ever seen lion dance performers before? Yes. At the Huntington Library and Gardens in Pasadena, they have uh, Lunar New Year celebrations in the Chinese gardens. Ah, yeah. So you can probably understand how exciting it is, especially as a kid growing up. Um, and especially for me, because I love mythology and adventure and monsters so much um how exciting it was you basically get to see this giant lion head it's got it's fuzzy it's actually it's got like real fur it's got like big eyes and eyelids that are like gold and shiny it's got fuzzy little eat oh fuzzy big ears and the ears can move and stuff the eyelids blink and the mouth opens and then so basically these performers will do it's kind of like martial arts slash dance slash acrobatics all combined. And it's they they dance to the beat of a really loud drum and cymbals. And they're really interactive as well. Your and your your parents will give you a red envelope to give to the dragons and imagine little little seven-year-old me walking up to this massive lion puppet head and I'm just like handing my little my little red envelopes into the giant mouth and like it, the the lion opens its mouth and it takes it and then it retreats and then I'm like oh my god it interacted with me and everybody's wanting to do that because that's you know it's a symbol of good luck and through my research, I found that sometimes people would also give these lions oranges or watermelons, too. And I'm like, how do they dance if they have a watermelon? I don't know. I'm sure they figure it out in there. Um, but usually at the end of their performance, the lion... So the lion head is one performer. And then the lion behind is the second performer. So near the end, the head of the lion will jump up onto the behind so there'll be like a basically a two-person tall really tall lion thing and you know they do this throughout and sometimes they throw each other and roll around and stuff but at the end if if you got like two lions they'll like drop a scroll and the scroll in um in traditional calligraphy says happy new year wishing you good fortune and good health and stuff like that and everybody cheers and is really excited and talk about puppeteering and costuming right like i learned that when a new lion enters a lion dancing troop they do something called a dotting ceremony so imagine um there's huh. two so just let you're laying the costume on the floor but you have two performers sitting inside it and the, the lion's basically like not active and then the ritual is to basically dots 
the, you know, quote unquote fake eyeballs of the costume with red paint. So red paint on one eye, red paint on the other eye, and then the horn, the horn on the lion head symbolizes its connection to the heavens and then you know dots it on other areas of the puppet slash costume too and then the drums start playing and then the performers actually perform the waking up of the of the lion and it's it's definitely a representation of how it's not just like oh we're two people hiding inside a costume it's this this uh regalia is not necessarily about that it's more about how they have the these two performers have become one being who interact with other humans now and um in the schechner book uh he describes how such performing objects are suffused with a life force capable of transforming those who play with and through them and that's fascinating Mm, absolutely. We're talking a lot about kind of imbuing something with history or someone with a force from beyond that counts as an ancestor or the lion as imbued with the, I mean, so much, almost the the fullness of culture, yeah. you know? Symbolizing prosperity and yeah. strength, but also having a lot of Buddhist symbology too. And, I mean, lions were not native to China, so this practice might have originated in India or Persia, and then the local Chinese might have mm. developed lion dance by imitating movements of the animals they knew. And, and even when you look at northern lion dancing versus southern, I mean, the northern style is very explosive and it's got a lot of stunts, and the southern style is more, um, it's more stylistic and dance-like and the costumes are even a little bit less realistic. And I even watched some videos of, I think in Malaysia, they had some examples of lion dancers standing on really tall wooden poles. I've, I've also seen that a couple times too, and that is just ridiculous. I mean, it's hmm. two people in a lion, uh, quote-unquote, costume, and they're standing like eight to ten plus feet off the ground on wooden poles, and they jump to one to the other, and it just reminds me of the thrill of it all, too. Oh, yeah. As you were thinking about these particular celebrations, I, which sort of transform the, the group or transform the, the lion or the dragon sort of puppet, I was thinking about when, when I was a kid and my family used to go to what is called the Highland Gathering and Games in Orange County. So this is referencing Scotland, the, the Highlands. And this is more a transformation of space, a transformation of space and what can happen within that space and a sense of bringing Scotland to Orange County, California is kind of the general thing that happens. And I, I would say I also got in touch with my sister to kind of ask her to remember what her experiences were. And she also took our mom this year, this summer to the games. And so I wanted to check in with her and see what the, how things had changed, how things had not changed. Part of our family lore is that our grandmother was part of what is known as Clan Hamilton. So 
as you know, there are there are family groups or clans in Scotland. They're they're famous like in the play Macbeth. I can say that because I'm not actually in a theater. I'm in the building next to a theater. <laughs> but I mean there are all the Campbell and all the different all the different families, all the different clans. And so ours was Hamilton. And this was kind of taught to us as a part of our heritage, a part of where we came from. And what's interesting is there were many, many other parts of our heritage from different aspects of our family. And I, of course, like many people, went back and did a 23andMe and found out exactly how far my roots spread and how, where, where I was kind of ancestrally located, I guess. There's a lot in Britain, there's a lot in Wales, there's a lot in Germany, and then other scattered places in Western Europe. I don't really extend much beyond Western Europe on, or Eastern Europe, unfortunately. But you could say that there is a family heritage in Wales, or in England, or in Germany. But what's interesting was that the Scottish games were what were foregrounded. This was kind of like, this is your opportunity to really touch base with where you came from. And it's, it's interesting because the Scottish games are an imagined Scotland, where there are people just wandering around playing bagpipes, and there are people leading border collies around because they're going to be in the sheep trials. And there are people selling coloring books of Scottish tartans and different outfits that they would wear. Or some weaponsmiths making the little dirks, the little um, daggers that traditional Scottish uh, men put in their socks to have when they need them. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating... This is what rises to the top, right? Because this is what is available. I'll talk about Oktoberfest in just a little bit. So there's some Germany that's available. But this is where we went. And it was just kind of... It was always a thing. It was always a thing that our family did, particularly with our grandparents. And it was exciting. I mean, there are cool symbols around. And... There are dragons, there, you know, there are Scottish dragons as well, and, and really fascinating stories. And I, I think that part of what's going on is a reclaiming of the past or a holding on to this idea of an agrarian past, a rural past, where people are doing caber tosses, where they toss these huge big logs I can't remember if they did caper tossing in, in Merida. Um, is that what a... Oh, oh, my gosh. Is the caber the log? The caber is the log. The big log oh. that you, like, <laughs> toss, and it goes sort of end-to-end, -end and then it lands and, and stuff. Uh, what is Merida's movie called? Oh, Brave. Brave. That's what it was called. But things like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember a lot. Maybe not. I know there was the archery that. thing, but um, oh, anything that's heavy and you can toss it, it's probably going to show up here. And Scottish dancers and the sheepdogs herding sheep, all kinds of things that basically say this was the way of life before now. 
and the folk music, and then um, folks who have uh, Hamilton heritage or Campbell heritage or whatever whatever it is, they would sort of dress up in their particular tartan, so their particular plaid, and walk in a group so you can see that the the group, the heritage is still there. It still exists. And as my sister said, there's kind of a limited space where bagpipes are welcome as instruments. You know, <laughs> I agree with her. Yeah. It's, it's not like they're going to come to every party and you're going to jam out to a bagpipe. So this is one of those places where People who actually play bagpipes are welcome and they actually are part of what is going on. That the bagpipe music is summoning these memories and summoning this idea of what Scotland was and still is. And so I I talked with my sister about, okay, what, what happened when you took mom this last time? What, what did you feel? Did you feel a connection? Did you feel like you were still a kid and you were being told this is what Scotland is like? This is part of who you are. And she said it's a little different now. She, she sat down with our mom and she just listened for an hour to folk singers and then just spontaneous music that sprung up after the folk singers were done. And it was almost restful and it was almost a, a, a fondness rather than a connection. And she said she doesn't have as strong a feeling of this is my heritage as she used to get. Mostly she said it was almost like massive cosplay and play acting and the sense of I am here to enact being Scottish, being part Scottish, with the people who were there, like that commonality. She also said that this year she particularly paid attention to the people of color who were here at this essentially Scottish or pretty white sort of gathering. And there were a lot of people, not a lot, but there were more people of color than she had noticed in previous years. And they seemed really comfortable and they seemed like they were having a great time being part of what was going on, part of this moment of bringing the past into the present. Thank you so much for sharing Absolutely. About it. Yeah, what you were describing reminded me of the Renaissance Fair, partially because I have not been to neither the Ren Fair nor this Scottish Games. Um, however, the main difference was probably that one is mostly fiction and the other is mostly non-fictional. And maybe that's also partly where the play element kind of separates into, into those two different paths where the Ren Faire kind of play is a little bit more... I mean, they're both, they're both imaginative, I'm sure, and they're both immersive and full of the exploratory sensations that we find a lot in play of the role playing and the the stuff play i think that's just an, a category now like stuff you know daggers and cloaks like that that's a kind of play honestly um but then there is that sense of connection and i i don't know how 
maybe the sense of connecting to magic and lords and warlocks and fairies and fae is actually maybe it's really similar to you know the feeling of your family connecting to some form or shadow of heritage yeah yeah i love i love that shadow of heritage i love it because you can see a shadow it's there but it is not truly what the thing is the thing is something different yeah and then, Avery, there are also heritages that may not be our own or may not be somebody's of a given culture, and yet they very much participate in them. And here I'm thinking about possibly St. Patrick's Day or Oktoberfest or Cinco de Mayo. And I thought the one thing that connects those three for me is the permission to drink. And this kind of brings me back to our episode on rebellion, but the idea of, okay, but to what end are we drinking? What, what brings us to Ireland or to Mexico or to Germany through drinking those particular drinks? Is, is celebration the same as memory? Is this appropriation or appreciation? And I, d I don't know. I, d I don't know what we learn through these particular celebrations. Yeah, me neither. But one thing that I do know is that drinking and even drugs and really deep music and crowd spirit are all some essence of a light trance that mm, yeah. that our lovely textbook performance studies mentions in that it's something something not something that was not originally in you so alcohol it enters your bloodstream and transports you to a place slightly different from reality and what with how much we've discussed about you know play and reality and then play versus reality is that you can celebrate St. Patrick's Day and not care a hoot about Irish people. And we mm. and there are probably a heck of a lot of people in America who do do that and they just see, you know, oh look, we get to wear green and have these cool little headbands that have a leprechaun hat and four-leaf clovers and stuff and we get to enjoy this symbolism. And we get to enjoy being in a light trance caused by alcohol and partying mm. with our friends and family. And maybe we get to, you know, reconnect, connect with our friends and our family. And, and then, you know, copy and paste that for 4th of July and Oktoberfest and Cinco de Mayo. And oh, for sure. It's so, it's kind of easy to fall into that sort of a trance. And it just reminds me a little bit about a holiday where we usually drink a little bit less is Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. Right. I, people usually people usually are more like, oh that's more of like a wine sipping kind of holiday. But um even Black Friday the day after Thanksgiving, I mean, talk about 
possession. Oh boy. And being possessed. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah. Outside influences taking over your body and making you do f- actions that are not your own. I mean, what else could do that other than a 70 inch TV? Oh, yeah. And especially that Black Friday happens to be the same day as Native American Heritage oh, Day. Yeah. You know, or also the same kind of heritageal season, you know, of a national mourning and protest from some Native Americans regarding the dark history around, you know, indigenous oppression. And, you know, same thing for Columbus Day, too, right? How we used to kind of have Columbus Day off all the time, but now people have rebranded it as Indigenous People's Day. And, I mean, another key word or buzzword for this episode is probably just rebranding. There's a lot of rebranding that happens over the course of history and throughout all of our lived experiences that we all share together collectively as humans. Uh, And how around Thanksgiving, teachers in grade school, we would, you know, make headdresses out of construction paper and you know, make turkeys with our hands. And sure, maybe the turkeys were a little bit less stereotypical than the headdresses, but still it it played a part in, in enacting a stereotype that, you know, all Native Americans wear the same regalia and you can just wear someone else's culture as a costume and we can mimic, we can mimic their culture without understanding the spiritual significance around it. And, you know, Thanksgiving is about giving thanks and the really hardworking, brave people who cross the sea to make a life for themselves with the help of some friendly natives. The end. You know, there's no the end to this. There's always yes and, you know, and as an adult, it's just kind of, it's a little bit depressing that there's so much, so many layers of nuances, but also it's important that there are so many nuances to this because there's not just one story to things. Absolutely. And once you understand that that scenario that Diana Taylor was talking about has that flexibility, then you can take that and you can you can change it actually and you can make it you can make it work for you. So here's an example of that. This is kind of coming to the the end of I think these questions of heritage and how do we learn about ourselves and going to where can we interrupt? Where can we create new play because Avery, commerce just created Black Friday out of thin air. I mean, (laughs) there is nothing, there is no heritage celebration having to do with Black Friday. Was there like a stock market crash or something that day, like a while ago? Yeah, I don't don't know if those two things line up, but yeah, uh, yeah, there was a stock market crash. But I mean, you know, isn't it ironic that you put those two things together? Okay, so the stock market crash that caused the Great Depression, and then buy, 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 get there before anyone else. Get your holiday shopping done so that you don't have to worry about it for the rest of December. Out of thin air, Avery, out of thin air. And you can create something like this. And so if it is um, unstable, let's call it unstable. If a scenario is unstable, if there is a truth to it, 
then you can always try and get closer to the truth by engaging with the scenario, just like what Little Tokyo is doing and what the museum near you is doing with the idea of Japanese internment, looking at, okay, this is maybe something that we, there's a book called How Baseball Saved Us or Baseball Saved Us that is about those times, or uh, George Takei and his graphic novel and his musical allegiance. And we can take that scenario and say, let's find the truth, right? Let's actually go and look at what the dwellings would have looked like. Let's read some diaries from the people. Let's bring in the primary sources so that we can get closer and closer to the truth rather than farther and farther and farther out at sea with scenarios like the first Thanksgiving. And I have one really interesting example of this and then kind of a concluding quote for you. And so there was a board game, a modern board game called Puerto Rico. And it was created somewhere around the year 2000. And it was riffing on the scenario of colonization, Spanish colonization of the island of Puerto Rico. And what you were doing in the game was you were producing crops and then you were shipping those crops to what was known as the old world. And what the game was asking you to do was essentially be in the role of the colonizer and in the role of the controllers of the island and dealing with the economic sort of ins and outs of developing this land. And you literally had these little discs called colonists, which you would put on a, a building or you would put on the tile that was out there as a little farm square. And so this was something that many board gamers saw as problematic. And the more and more that board gaming, modern board gaming touched groups other than sort of where they started, which was Western Europe and then uh, traditional sort of middle-class America, the more uh, problematic this was seen to be. People were, were calling it out. And so there was a board game designer who said, can I take this board game and can I shift the focus, move the, the time up a little bit to 1897 after Puerto Rico gained its independence from Spain and instead of shipping goods to the old world, ship goods around the island to make sure that everybody had what they needed. Still build the buildings, still work the fields, but change the narrative, exact same game, exact same game, just shifting the narrative to get a little closer to the truth of the situation that was there. It's really powerful. Yeah. And my final quote for today was from Joseph Connerton, who wrote a, a really amazing little book called How Societies Remember. And so his argument is that we need to constantly remember what came before. We need to push back against forgetting. 
And this is the quote that I chose. He says, I have seized upon commemorative ceremonies and bodily practices in particular, because it is the study of these, I want to argue, that leads us to see that images of the past and recollected knowledge of the past are conveyed and sustained by more or less ritual performances. And here, I think we can say playful performances. I really enjoy what you said about going to the source for mentally reenacting something playfully. And I found this plaque on a rock in um, the actual town of Plymouth um, on behalf of the United American Natives of New England. And the plaque reads, National Day of Mourning. Since 1970, Native Americans have gathered at noon on Coles Hill in Plymouth to commemorate a National Day of Mourning on the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. Many Native Americans do not celebrate the arrival of the Pilgrims and other European settlers. To them, Thanksgiving Day is a reminder of the genocide of millions of their people, the theft of their lands, and the relentless assault on their culture. Participants in National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native peoples to survive today. It is a day of remembrance and spiritual connection as well as a protest of the racism and oppression which Native Americans continue to experience. And just as many organizations nowadays release land acknowledgement statements of how, you know, the land that they're currently using originally did not belong to them, that, I mean, that's a whole other conversation for another day, but go back to the source because listing names is not enough. Go back to the source and rediscover and learn from the sources of what really happened and use your memory for protest and being powerful. And don't forget to be playful with it while you're at it. This has been Powered by Play with Avery and Drew. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you can support us online at Coffee. That is ko-fi.com slash powered by play. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.